0: Welcome to the MSF Farm Talk podcast. I'm Tanya Morgan and today we're going to be talking about fertiliser inputs going into season 2022 which is quite a pertinent topic given the cost of fertiliser at the moment and pretty average season across most of the Mallee I think. So I'm joined today by research agronomist from Agronomy Solutions Sean Mason and Therese Macbeth who's a research scientist with CSIRO and my question to both of them is how much can I wind back my fertilizer inputs for this year? Who wants to have a first crack yeah, at that? Good
1: question. I guess the question does relate back knowing your soils and I suppose production zones in your paddock as well. So unfortunately phosphorus in particular there's a lot of chemistry involved with uh, maximising inputs and the efficiency of those inputs. So recent data suggesting in the Mallee that we do have a lot of soils that are adequate phosphorus status which is a good thing coming into this year and the areas that are low P are notoriously carbonate sections with high pH, low NDVI. So we do have some data layers that we could possibly look at to identify these zones so again coming back to zonal representation as far as how much we can cut back uh, if we are at good levels i would suggest and the data does say that starter p is definitely still important and when we're looking at the p rates we're generally looking at five units and maybe a little bit more if we do reduce lower than five units of p there is that issue of fertilizer granule distribution with seed. There will be some uh, seedlings that, that won't see that fertilizer granule, so you will start seeing some patchiness. And starter peak can definitely help with early vigor and getting the crop out of the ground.
0: Anything you <laughs> want to add to that, Therese? Yeah. So I guess
2: in the conversations I've had with growers, Thinking about their farm, I think it's useful to break up your farm into a few different production types. So, for the Mallee, generally we have those loams which tend to have higher soil test values. They're quite productive and we don't want to wind back too much on those loams because they do give in the wet seasons. But if they have a really high soil test value, that's an area where you can wind back your phosphorus inputs. The other areas that tend to have high soil test phosphorus are the really heavy flats, maybe because we've been putting the same inputs out on those soils, but they always pull up short in the drier seasons. So that's an area also where you can wind back on the phosphorus inputs. Then sandy soils have very low buffering. So generally it's a bit risky to wind back too much um, on those sandy soils and and often a a replacement type strategy will work reasonably well there. And then the other soil type to think about is uh, rocky and potentially calcareous soils. But there is a separation there. We do have some paddocks in the Mallee that are quite rocky, they don't necessarily have a lot of what's called reactive carbonate which means they don't have the the chemistry that means that they're locking up the fertilizer that we add. So it is worth in those soils where it's a bit marginal like you don't know if they're rocky or calcareous or both it is worth checking the phosphorus buffering index there and making sure if it's moderate to high that tends to mean that um, it is calcareous and you're going to need more than replacement for those soil types. If it comes back with a low PBI, low buffering then that means that it's it sits in that category of the loams and the clays. So there's a few sort of key soil types there for the Mallee where we can start to play around a bit, even if you don't have full variable rate technology. I think a lot of people in the Mallee are used to those different key soil types.
0: Given that we had a pretty average season across most of the Mallee last year, how important is it going to be to soil tests going into this year? Can we look at past history?
1: Probably biased because I'm getting people to put a soil probe in, but definitely knowing... If you've got really good fertiliser and crop yield history that really does help with that replacement versus input data and as Trace mentioned factoring in a PBI measurement will actually give you confidence of of adequate P reserves. Verifying that with the soil probe is key and identifying the soil tests at the lab to actually provide you a proper recommendation is is key as well. Yeah, advocate that but having good records I think if we don't manage to get the soil probe in before the start of the season is key and we can start looking at data layers and, and how our paddock's performing with like NDVI, and, and knowing even a simple soil pH by a fizz measurement will actually characterise your soils pretty well and where there potentially might be an issue if we do cut back too much.
0: What's the most cost-effective way to get pee out on a paddock?
1: That's a really good point. I guess we aren't flush with alternative sources in the Mallee. We have seen chicken litter use, if we can get our hands on it, but it does really reduce with transport costs, but that's possibly an option that growers may look at. Again, it's important, and pee placement's really important for adequate root function and and accessibility. So if we are broadcasting our chicken litter, we may actually not get that pea source maximum benefit this year because it will be stuck to the surface and obviously the crop roots are growing down. So that is one issue if we're trying to tap into alternative source this year. As i alluded to, placement near the seed and potentially slightly below is adequate for maximising fertiliser use efficiency, that early access with developing roots as they grow down and chase moisture.
0: That briefly covers phosphorus. What are we thinking in terms of nitrogen for this year? I think most people will be holding off
2: on nitrogen a bit. Compared to other seasons early on, it has been a reasonably wet summer, but not so wet that we will have leached all the nitrogen, but we would also expect some carryover of nitrogen from the last growing season. I think for those areas where you're a bit unsure about what your level of carryover, making sure that you have 40 kilos of mineral end within your rooting zone to get the crop up and away and through to tillering is useful. Apart from that, I think it really... Depends on how your system is geared um, and to what degree you're relying on legumes and how reliant you are on meeting your target yield within your overall farm setup to dictate what your nitrogen rates would be. I think cost benefits on nitrogen in the Mallee will still be there at modest rates. You know, There still will be a, a positive cost benefit for nitrogen inputs in systems that are low fertility, if that makes sense.
0: Sean, what sort of trends are you seeing with nitrogen?
1: Yeah, I, I think, as Trey's alluded to, I mean, that somebody the input versus output scenario and there is some reasonable nitrogen banks there that we potentially get through to see how the season progresses, at least that end of tillery. So, again, knowing your profile. Again, soil sampling and knowing what your soil is doing, but whatever the recent application versus offput is some levels of, are pretty good to actually get them through and we can make a decision in season if the season's looking favourably. And knowing that is, is key. And again, zones, the soil's gonna behave and capture that residual end differently if there's constraints present. So again, we may have vastly different profile ends across a paddock. Treating it as a whole is potentially losing money.
0: It's gonna be pretty important to know what you're dealing with going into this mm. season. Given the fact that N might be hard to get hold of, especially early on in the season, what will be the implications if people don't have it at seeding? Is it gonna be an issue? I think it's an issue
2: where you do have the very low soil mineral ends sometimes when we check our soil test ends they are at 15 to 25 kilos and um, when it's really low like that if you have a good season it can be really hard to catch up because a bit of end up front is really important for getting an even crop established in a way for competing with weeds for competing with disease and the other pressures so that's where there'll be a crunch point is for areas with really low fertility and if we follow on with a good season generally the mallee landscape is diverse not many growers have just one soil type and so hopefully that helps them to allocate limited resources where they're needed the most as well.
0: Some of the work you were doing at the Lowaldi trial site was looking at no fertiliser application early on and applying it later in the season. We're seeing a growing trend of farmers sowing without nitrogen uh, to get a better crop establishment, less risk of fertiliser toxicity. What do you think about that sort of strategy? It's
2: fine but I think the reality for
0: the Mallee is you still end up
2: needing to put your nitrogen out before you have really good confidence in the growing season. It's still going in pretty much in July so you're not fully on top of what your potential will be even then and that's because you can't rely on rainfall events as much as you might in other environments to incorporate top dressed nitrogen. I think it's fine if you're set up to get through to tillering. It's fine to delay it, but still the reality for a lot of mallee guys is they have a pretty limited window to get their nitrogen out and they don't
0: necessarily have a lot of extra information to help them make that decision Mm. at the point when they have to make it. And going on last year's weather predictions, they're not always very accurate, so it's pretty hard to know what's going to happen. I don't think that relying on the forecast
2: is the biggest lever you can pull in terms of making the best possible decision.
0: Last year legume production was fairly low given the tough rainfall season. What sort of nitrogen input can we expect from a legume crop that's only had average rainfall conditions in the previous year?
2: I think generally you only get around 25 to 40 kilos of extra mineral in at the time of sowing but That said, we were talking about 40 kilos of mineral wind being adequate to get a crop through to tillering without any drama and that's enough nitrogen for one-tonne crops.
1: Unfortunately, some had a poor 20... 21. So particularly with immobile nutrients like phosphorus, I mean Teresa can mention the other benefits of near 2021's double line sowing. As P doesn't really move that far, we can actually try and capture some of that input from last year into this season's crop if we do have a, a positive balance from last year. Hoping that wasn't the scenario for most in 2021, but if that does fit, then that definitely is a potential residual benefit from both 21 and hopefully leading into 22.
2: I think that's true and the other thing you can capture is a little bit of extra moisture to establish the crop and compete with weeds if it is a dry start to the season. But we do know that it can be challenging to implement edge or near row sowing at the farm scale. It it really depends if that's manageable for the grower, whether they can tap into that or not.
0: Going into this year, we're looking at where we can make as many savings with fertilizer as possible. I think people also be looking at other inputs like testing. So how can they maximize the information they get from testing without having to, to test every single paddock on the farm?
1: Trying to get as much return out of the soil test as possible. Even small things like uh soil pH to some extent, especially on carbonate soils, PBI is a good representation. These are Inherent soil properties, especially alkalinity and, and PBI um, with carbonate present, don't change too much. This is a one-off. So we can actually use data from previous seasons if we do have captured that. And we have a GPS location we can actually start looking at and phosphorus and nitrogen trends on that same spot, which is really important, and again, establishing these spots within production zones, soil type zones, is gonna maximize what information that the paddock is providing. And matching that with an NDVI has been really important for identifying these alkaline patches that have high fixation properties and do have a low NDVI with the rest of the paddock. So there are cheap alternatives. We start looking at intensive sampling programs and quickly costs at the lab do increase. And it's really, if we are going down that stage, it's really important to choose a data layer that's gonna be meaningful. For instance, a cobalt pea without a PBI interpretation can be dangerous, particularly in the Mallee with our different soil types. So that's a key aspect. So knowing your sampling program, and that's why we're, we're really keen on this zone. Not so much intensive, but does capture what the paddock is actually producing and the, the soil characteristics, hopefully.
0: What's the minimum number we should target?
2: The time we worked at Lawalty, we started with nine zones, and in the end, we had four stable zones, which were the dune midswale, but also the crest of the dune, which is that really poor performing sand that never gives no matter what you feed it
0: and in terms of soil amelioration going into this year the fact that we usually increase yield potential and you need to fertilize for that where cost of production is likely to be fairly high where can we make savings or do we just pull back on the amount of soil amelioration that's done
2: i think there are some things you can do to improve the efficiency of ripping and also to better identify where you should be ripping which we're talking about in a different session which is relates back to the ripping costs but in terms of the inputs around ripping up front there might be some savings to be had because you're opening up the profile and if you have nutrients in the profile that you haven't previously been able to access then you may tap into them. However that is a short-term gain in terms of if you are increasing your yield potential and we are working with sandy soils which have that poor ability to retain nutrients then that's not something we can do in the long term. In the end we will have to replace those nutrients we exhaust with the increased yield potential. So it it could be a short-term solution but with a longer term you will have to
0: feed them in the end hopefully this season is good and yeah. people can make up for it That's the cost right. of fertilizer normalizes a bit sean you talked about soil ph and how that doesn't really change from one year to the next we're seeing a lot more soil acidity creeping in small areas in the Mallee. How does that affect nutrient availability and tie-up?
1: Yeah, it's really hard. Unfortunately, when we talk about these responsive zones, so these are where carbonate present, it's really hard to get any real acidification and release of peas. so there's been ample work trying to look at that and, obviously, the amount of dollars that is, is locked up in their soils in these zones. I would definitely, on the other flip side, if we are some of these low buffering soils that are actually susceptible to acidification with agricultural practices. In terms of nutrients, this stuff that we've been working with in the lime trials, the phosphorus isn't really an issue so the main aspect is possibly releasing aluminium. A lot of our soils have a lot of aluminium to release or if they're under acidic conditions we aren't having great production. The P inputs have actually been pretty good to, to have some decent P reserves so I wouldn't worry too much about that. I would yeah, focus on ameliorating the, the pH issue and obviously these the other issues with susceptible crop types that don't really like that uh, low ph scenario
2: there might be a trade-off depending on for susceptible crops in in their root growth and exploration mm. which might affect how efficiently they use nutrients yeah. so in in principle yes as you take your ph from alkaline down to neutral acidic you, you might improve your phosphorus availability in particular but if your roots are being pruned for any reason or your nitrogen fixation is being held up then There'll be some trade offs. But essentially, if your pH is reaching some of those acidity type thresholds, your pH is not a really easy thing to ameliorate. Addressing the pH before it becomes a big problem is going to be
0: your Mm. focus. In the last few years, we've seen an intensification of legumes in the system. We've seen more hay in the system. We're definitely getting better yields than what we've seen in Mm. the past with newer varieties and just better agronomy in general. Mm. How does that drive the whole nutrition dynamic in a low rainfall system? I think
2: it it makes us vulnerable to these fertiliser prices. We are quite reliant on fertiliser inputs to maintain the intensive system, especially in our sandy soils that don't have that buffering or ability to retain nutrients then you are a bit exposed. And so some of the work we are doing at the moment in our pasture legumes project is trying to think about legumes in the system and whether we can use them to supplement a nitrogen banking strategy where you decouple your nitrogen inputs from the season and you start to think about your long-term target yields and you feed the soil in order to to maintain that, which is a strategy that's been tested in other environments, but we're really curious about the Mallee environment, which doesn't have that nutrient retention. Can it sustain that kind of system with fertilizer? Does it need legumes in the system to retain that? Can the legumes offset some of that demand for fertilizer? So that's something we're playing around with at the moment and Bonnie Floor is going to present that at the GRDC updates in February.
0: I think we'll follow up on that. How important is the type of legume too?
2: It is important. Actually, we were working on partial legumes. One of the best nitrogen fixes was vetch, as you would expect. Because of how well, how evenly they establish and the level of biomass they produce particularly if you brown manure them, and you can really get some high levels of nitrogen fixation of looking at the sequence and the trade-offs with the inputs
0: to work out whether that's the most viable. How do we make a good decision about alternative products? What are some of the questions we should be asking about those products?
2: I think a couple of things to look at how much nutrient is in the product that you want to buy, making sure in particular how much nitrogen and phosphorus you're going to be able to deliver with that product. But the other thing that is a bit harder for a grower on their own to necessarily know is how soluble or available that nutrient is and that will vary a lot depending on the product but even some of your manures and biosolids for example won't have the same available product or nutrient as a fertilizer product. You do have to have different expectations per unit nutrient for fertilizers when you compare them with products. What is it that makes them more available or more soluble? Usually it's more to do with the soil that you're adding them to so the pH of the soil that you're adding them to and Yep. to some degree the moisture of the soil you're adding them to. A lot of the alternative products out there are not well suited to high pH dry environments. So, so that's something to be aware of. And even recently I saw some queries about going back to single super phosphate and I think that's an example. So that product is calcium phosphate and if you're dealing with alkaline soils, especially calcareous soils, it has very low solubility. The amount of phosphorus you get back out of that product is a lot lower
0: than... you get out of other products so that's one example nitrogen and phosphorus sits in a pool what are some of the seasonal factors that will affect that availability
1: if the climate presents a favorable april in terms of rain we can get in there early sowing but the re- actual residual pea expiration in your soil is, is greater. So there's been some recent research that actually shows the early sowing. So this is late April, very early May with adequate moisture. So a wet April is, is you can actually save on water input. Yeah, so it, it's the whole nature of the crop establishing and picking up a hell of a lot more of that residual pea that we've applied in the past. And be less reliant on that current P fertilizer that we've applied so that's a potential opportunity hopefully it comes true but yeah that's some recent work and again that will be your responsive soil top that you'll be able to cut back on and Whereas if we go into mid-May and later May, then those those P requirements are still there because yeah. of the natural cooling and less diffusion of phosphorus.
2: Same applies to nitrogen. So the wetter and warmer the start to the season, the more nitrogen is mineralising and the more it is also um, cycling through the crop residues. And so then there becomes less competition between the microbes and the plant early in the growing season.
0: To finish off top tips from both of
2: you I think know your broad groupings of soil types and how crops in those soils react to fertilizers will help allocate your resources that would be the thing I'd be focusing on
1: that would be my number one as well and it just helps with coming years actually going back to the same spot and looking at trends whatever nutrient we're looking at if we've got these zones well characterized by soil and yield production across years and even crop types then the future.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us today from the Rose Garden at Wait. Thanks for joining us. If you want to hear more, like and subscribe to the MSF Farm Talk podcast. Catch you later.